Tonight I'd like to talk about politics. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> You're off the hook, Howie. <laughs> Tonight I thought that it would be an appropriate night to speak of the, the summer solstice, the day of greatest amount of light, longest day of the year. And when I thought about doing this today, earlier, I thought that, uh, yes, the, this is the longest day of the year when the light is brightest. And yet, this is also the beginning of the darkening. And the teachings are always reminding us that everything is of the nature of change and impermanence. So light gives way to, to uh, longer days, to darkness. But the teachings also remind us that we have within us, as uh, Albert Camus said, in the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer. That we have within us the capacity to generate a kind of light that can pervade both the long days of the year and our lives and the, the short days and the, the more difficult things in our lives. And the metaphor of light is used a lot in the teachings as the one of the metaphors for the light of awareness, the, the awareness through which you are perceiving right now. And that like, like light in general, it is, uh, awareness is not personal. So your awareness is, my awareness is no better than your awareness. Yet it is the strange, and futile preoccupation of the ego, of the self-idea, to try to take ownership of even, even create a, a view about myself, even about my awareness, that my awareness is more spacious than yours. My awareness is stronger than yours. And so it, our identity view has no shame. It will take anything and make it into me. It'll make it into something personal. But the more we get in touch with this so-called light of attention, we see that it is primordial. It is unconditional. It is, you could say, eternal. Like the eternal flame that lives in us. And it, when it is nurtured, it seems to shine brighter. 
when it is ignored, this ever-present fact of our existence, when it is ignored, it seems as though our experience of life becomes more contracted, more obscured. We become more confused. We become less satisfied, less whole, more insufficient, more filled with doubt. When the light of attention shines brighter, there is a, there is a feeling of, of wholeness, feeling of sufficiency, feeling that when I am aware, awake, that I have everything I need. Nothing is missing in the moments of awareness. Everything I long for is given. Yet, we have to be, at least the, the teachings remind us that we, we tend to, because we're conditioned, we tend to fall into delusion. We tend to become unclear and that, that light, that inexhaustible light of awareness seems to, only because of delusion or greed or hatred in our minds, tends to become uh, obscured. And so a day like the longest day of the year is both a reminder that we have within us a light that, will, that doesn't depend on the solstice or the equinox, doesn't depend on the seasons, but uh, shines inexhaustibly as the light of our own attention. But it is not just this kind of unconditional light. It, it, uh, it is all of the qualities, all of the heart and mind qualities that are the expressions of this, um, this light of attention that sustain us, that, that keep us afloat, that allow us to be a, a, a blessing to this world, even when it's so filled with, with horror, unmistakably, that the qualities that flow from awareness can not only be recognized, but they can be cultivated. And the more we cultivate those qualities of the heart, qualities of mind that are useful, the more we shine brightly in this world regardless of the circumstances we're in. And in the, of course, in the Buddhist teachings, there are many, 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 many lists of qualities and things that you can develop. But one of the most beautiful is the list of the, what are called the ten paramitas, the otherwise known as the ten perfections, the, the full expression of an enlightened awareness, the, the ten perfections. And I brought somewhere along the whole list tonight. I got this far with the Dharma talk. <laughs> The ten perfections traditionally were, they, you know, and this requires a certain view of the cosmology of Buddha Dharma that used to be very common during the time of the Buddha. The cosmology was, was such that uh, it was just a very matter-of-fact 
view that a person was the was the per, a human being was a manifestation of a stream of mind, a mind stream that would transmigrate birth after birth. So the idea of rebirth or reincarnation was very common. And so the, the story from the Jataka tales and the story from, from some, of the, um, some of the more historical things about the Buddha is that he, in the many, in his previous lives before he became Gotama, you know, uh, Siddhartha Gotama, he transmigrated through these different lifetimes. And during these lifetimes, he perfected the qualities that these so-called paramitas. And that because at one point, many, many moons ago, during the, during the life of an, a pre-existing Buddha, when he was a, a, um, just a wandering, he was just a, uh, a beggar or something. He, was, he had some very um, modest life and he met the existing Buddha at the time. Uh, Deepankara, I think, that was the name. You know, the names are... And he was so inspired in meeting that existing Buddha at the time that he decided at that moment that he would, he would, not, um, he would not stop his practice till he was a fully awakened Buddha with all of the qualities of a Buddha fully manifest. Not just being awakened, but a fully awakened Buddha. So there's an arhant, a so-called awakened person, but then a Buddha is a fully awakened arhant, somebody who has perfected these qualities. So the paramitas reflect the qualities that were developed over the Buddha's past lives, if you believe in that. But more recently, they became, it became very central in the teachings of both the Theravada tradition, the, the uh, different Zen traditions, the Tibetan traditions, qualities that one can cultivate in this very life. And that they are, they are natural expressions of, of our awakening, but qualities that when we give attention to them, give energy to them, can become um, beautiful lights in this world. And the first one that we always talk about every Tuesday night, the first parami, the first teaching that the Buddha offered to lay people like us was the, the light of generosity. The way that generosity brings so much joy to this world, joy to the giver, joy to the receiver, uh, joy in the thought of giving, joy in the act of giving, joy in the memory of having given, that it's a quality that, is, uh, that brings so much joy and light to this world. And that is... Um, considered the first pillar of the Dharma. I think I speak about that a lot here. And it's not just a, it's not just a something we do on Tuesday night because the Buddha set up this system of mutual generosity 2,600 years ago. Throughout the, the teachings, throughout the 2,600 years that the teachings have been shared, this has been, this teaching of generosity has been a central uh, teaching and a beautiful example of the non-clinging, of letting go, of, of that which brings joy in life. So generosity is the first 
paramita or parami. The second is morality, which is, remember, that's also the second pillar of the Dharma. Dana, which is generosity. Sila, which is conduct, uh, morality, ethics. Establishing in one's thoughts, in one's words, in one's actions, a complete commitment to non-harming so that one radiates if one practices impeccably non-harming to the extent that one can, given that you know we are we don't always see everything we're doing and on every level we're we are we're works in progress. But if one impeccably offers oneself over to the purification of speech, of actions, of livelihood, does the all the training of of, you know, being, you know, I don't want to get involved in the, in the whole uh, teaching on Sila tonight, but if one practices non-harming in body, speech, and mind, day in and day out, that one offers to this world, independent of circumstances, the bliss of blamelessness, the joy that comes from non-harming, and offers to the world the, a gift, sometimes called the gift of fearlessness, in that when in, fe- in experiencing being around someone who practices non-harming, you give the gift to someone that they do not have to be afraid. You create a, an environment of safety by, your, by the quality of heart of non-harming. So that's a very central uh, way of of cultivating this this inexhaustible light that we have. So there's dana and sila, generosity and morality. The third, not very often practiced in this world, <laughs> especially in this consumer society, where the, the whole thing is arranged to, um, the whole thing has to function, the only way it can function is to keep us in a state of constant greed constant filling of our, of our um, satisfying our desires so that we live in what's sometimes described, I would say our consumer culture is like the plane of existence traditionally called the plane of the hungry ghosts. Plane that is um, inhabited by beings with tiny mouths and huge stomachs, insatiable. And so the third Paramita, the third perfection, the third thing that actually is a light unto this world is the quality of renunciation. And of course, in general, renunciation means renouncing the causes of suffering, the causes of contraction, the causes, those things in our our life that actually make us very small, make our view very narrow, make us preoccupied with this linear sense of time and makes us lose this broad light of awareness, the impartiality of the, the sun shining as it does. The, as Brian Swim calls it, the, the uh, cosmic generosity. He says the sun each second transforms four million tons of itself into light. 
Human generosity is possible only because at the center of the solar system, a magnificent stellar generosity pours forth free energy day and night without stop, without complaint, and without the slightest hesitation. So in order for that, our own inexhaustible light to shine, we have to be available. We have to be available to the simple reality of the living present where that light is inexhaustible. Notice how when you are here, and I, I'm, I'm always happy to remind myself of this, when I'm here and I'm not lost in the idea of what's next, not lost in the idea of what went before, when I'm here, and I know I'm here, and I stay here for a little bit, and I remain undistracted, really simple, have my senses open, just know that I'm seeing, know that I'm hearing, know that I'm smelling, know that I'm tasting, know that I'm feeling. When I can remember to be that immediate, it is in those moments that I start to feel more alive. I start to plug into that, that sense of aware, alive presence. And the light of awareness shines brighter. But in order for me to, to experience that inexhaustible light, I, ha I, I cannot be excessively preoccupied with wanting what I don't have and not wanting what I do have. I have to be, I have to have some commitment, some love of simplicity, of I have, to, I have to remember that the sufficiency, the, the worthiness, the acceptability, whatever it is that I'm searching for is, is found through, not through acquisition, accumulation, but it comes from letting go into life, into this sense of immediacy. And so we renounce anything that keeps us from being in touch with this living present. This is not, doesn't mean that we stop planning. But we try to remember that we're planning. It doesn't mean that we stop remembering. If we couldn't plan or couldn't remember, we'd go crazy. But the tendency is to be so lost in our plans, so lost in our memories, that we tend to associate our happiness with how things were or how things will be instead of how things are. And in that, in that tendency to choose the happiness that depends on satisfying the hunger, we we deprive ourselves of the, the light, uh, the inexhaustible light of simplicity, of presence. So right now, when you don't look ahead and you don't look back, do you need anything? 
You don't consult your memory. Anything missing other than your suffering. Anything needed. Isn't it true? Every, all desires are satisfied. And that simple renunciation of the imagined past and future and orient, orientation to the living present. So renunciation is, uh, is also renouncing the, any other cause of suffering. So it, it dovetails beautifully into renouncing the excessive use of intoxicants that cloud our mind, renouncing the, uh, renouncing the practice of the intentional practice of complaining and ill will and judging. Now, I'm not saying that those things don't arise naturally based on past conditions, but renouncing the, the, the ongoing practice of things that bring suffering. So the renunciation of greed in our mind, it's constantly looking ahead, the renunciation of hatred, and finally the renunciation of the, the futile pursuit of being better than others. The futile pursuit at proving ourselves, which just reinforces a view of somebody who doesn't even exist that is measurable, a view of ourselves. And of course, it overlooks the extraordinariness of each person as you are, where you are, eternally now. I always think of, I think it was William Blake or Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he said, who you are, shout so loudly, I can't hear what you say. We're so used to measuring ourselves. I was talking to someone today, and I think this, the renunciation of the comparing mind is just... Uh, at least an intentional practice of the comparing mind. It, and what, how does this renunciation happen? You have to notice the comparing mind. And I was, uh, th this person was just not cutting himself any slack because his business is challenged and his, um, and his whole sense of worth is dependent on how, on performance on how it compares to other people. And yet, this is beautiful being sitting right there in front of me. And so I shared with him the poem that I often share here from uh, the, the poet Rumi. It's called Tending Two Shops. And he, in the, in the poem, and I'm just going to pick a little piece of it, he says, live in the nowhere where you came from. Which is another way of saying, just in this immediate, simple place where you're not defined by past, future, history, anything. Just notice that. Doesn't mean that you're 
that we don't respect and appreciate and uh, the way all of our individual histories brought us here to this moment. But don't just live in your story. Live in the nowhere where you came from, which is right here. Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. That's what the poem said. So you have your story, you have your, your joys, your sorrows, your situations, your successes, your failures, all the, the worldly winds that blow through our lives. Praise, blame, gain, loss, pleasure, pain, fame, shame. That's the address that you have here. It says, live in the nowhere where you came from. It's just nowhere to find. Even though you have an address here. It says, you have eyes that see from that nowhere. And you have eyes that judge distances. How high, how low. You own two shops. And you keep running back and forth. Close the one that's a fearful trap. Always getting smaller. Checkmate this, checkmate that. That's the one where we're measuring all the time. Comparing, evaluating. Close the one that's a fearful trap. Always getting smaller. Checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the one where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You're the free swimming fish. Because the, the comparing mind is like the hungry ghost. It can never be satisfied. Because it's measuring, it's creating a view of self, of somebody that doesn't actually exist. There's no measurement that can ever, ever give relief. And the Buddha talked about three kinds of measurements that we chronically get involved in, that keep us in that sense of spinning, that, that sense of, of getting smaller, checkmate this, checkmate that. These three ways that we chronically compare. We put ourselves above others. Any of you ever do that? Put ourselves below others. We put ourselves equal to others. We, that's still measuring. It's called the equality view, mana. Atimana, the superiority view. Amana, the inferiority view. It, in any case, it's conceit. And it just builds a whole narrative about somebody, an imagined you, that thinks, we think that someday we'll be happy if we can either you know, stay above or not be below or make sure we're equal to others. This truly has not made anybody light and has not made anybody happy, the comparing mind. It's a torment of the mind, a kilesa, a defilement, as it's talked about in the teaching. And so we renounce the, the belief in the comparing mind. That's a central. You know, one of the ways we do that, though, is, uh, <coughs> is to have a um, sense of humor about it. Just because the, the limits that one will go to. Oh, I don't have a with me. Thought I had it with me. Well, I guess this is a good time to re-share re the, 
the great comparing mind story from the Hasidic tradition where one day a rabbi in a frenzy of religious passion rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees and started beating his breast crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. (laughs) (laughs) The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. Then the shamus or the custodian Watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed to the custodian and and said, Look who thinks he's nobody. So you can see this this inclination, this movement toward light that 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 at least in this particular list invites us to to intensify that light through the practice of generosity, through non-harming, through renunciation. You can see that these are purification practices. They show us in clear detail where it is that we become occluded, become confused, become um, dim in our life. And at first, as you try to, as you practice generosity, for example, the Buddha described three kinds of generosity, and you can you can see, you can it's a a practice not to impose some kind of uh, impossible idea, ideal, but to meet yourself exactly where you are. And he, if we have not really trained our attention to incline toward this light of generosity, we maybe at the beginning we will have what the Buddha called beggarly giving, where we give only that which we could care less about, and reluctantly. And then some of us are naturally more like, as he described as, princess or princely giving, where we, we give that which we, we value, but we're, you know, we're happy to get rid of it. And then finally, we evolve toward what's called queenly or kingly giving, where we give that which we value the most. We completely live in a state of, of trust that the river or the circle, the spiral of generosity will, will um, supports us just by being generous. And that, that abundance comes to those who practice generosity. But not just adopting that as a view, but as a direct experience that comes from this practice of extending ourselves. But in that process, you see, oh, I'm so afraid to give. And I, I, and generosity doesn't come easily. Or I'm so prone to compare. I really believe my comparisons. But as Francois Fenelon put it, as the light increases, at first we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We're amazed by our former blindness. 
as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings and thoughts like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind, I think I read this last week, bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So we notice the comparing mind and we renounce it. And we renounce all the other forms of suffering. But how do we do that? We have to see how much of the time we're dwelling in complications and proliferations, dwelling in wanting what I don't have, dwelling in, in uh, being contentious with reality, not wanting what I do have. And by seeing that, we, we erase a lot of that conditioning and we fall in love with being right exactly where we are. So just briefly, since we're getting in, I, I knew I couldn't do all the paramis tonight, but um, we have generosity, morality, renunciation. The next one is wisdom. Wisdom is, a, is about a thousand talks all by itself, but essentially wisdom is understanding, in the simplest way, it's understanding that it is not an aberration in anyone's life that we have stress. And what intensifies our stress what turns our basic stress into mental suffering is our view that it shouldn't be there. Our view that our chronic tendency to want things different than the way they are. Our inability to open to our life as we find it, as a starting point. And wisdom tells us that letting go of the tight fist of grasping and holding and clinging and incessant wanting brings a tremendous relief and that cultivating one's heart over and over again as we're talking about tonight, cultivating the light of attention in all its many ways can bring a, a well-being to your life that pervades even the, the times of difficulty. That we can be in this very life, free, unencumbered, regardless of circumstances. So we don't have to hold ourselves hostage to circumstances. It is not so much what is happening in our life, but it is the way we relate to it that determines whether or not we suffer excessively. And that is within our, wisdom tells us that it is within the power of our own yearning, our own attention, our own love to liberate our hearts from that kind of suffering. So to me, the, the Parmese wisdom, all the elements of it, are an inspiration to, to stay in that light of attention. So the last ones, I won't even go through these, is energy, is effort and energy, is cultivating what's wholesome, maintaining it, abandoning what's unwholesome and preventing it from arising, creating mental strength, 
and energy and vitality, taking care of yourself. Next one, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, and finally the, the culmination, the pinnacle of the, the paramitas is equanimity. The unshakable balance of heart, the impartiality of heart that can meet all the joys and sorrows, that leaves no one out of the field of, of, of goodwill and good wishes, but also knows that every being is the, is the heir, that we're all the heirs of our actions and our karma. And whether or not we're in that light depends to a certain degree by our actions, not on my wish or your wish. It depends on each person resolving their own heart and mind through our own efforts. So I think a beautiful example of this inexhaustible light, the kind of person that pervades the solstice, I'll end with this little story. There was a wise woman who was traveling in the mountains when she, was, when she came upon a beautiful clear stream. Thirsty, she cupped her hand, reached in around, brought the water to her mouth. After she had drunk, she noticed a precious stone in the palm of her hand. She held it high and it glittered in the sun. Delighted, she tucked the treasure into her bag. The next day, the wise woman met a hungry fellow traveler and without hesitating, she opened her bag to share what food she had. Immediately, the traveler caught sight of the precious stone and asked the woman to give it to him. She did so without the slightest hesitation. The traveler left rejoicing in her good fortune. I mean, in his good fortune. This stone was surely worth enough money to provide a lifetime of security. But only a few days later, he came back. His brow furrowed and returned the stone to the wise woman. I've been thinking, he said, I know how valuable this stone must surely be, but I brought it back to trade for something even more precious. Please give me what you have within you that enables you to freely give me the stone. So let's all rest in that which we all have within us. That if cultivated, will allow us to give everything for liberation, freedom. As it's said in the Tibetan tradition, remember the pure light, bright, shining light of your own nature. It is deathless. The visions you experience are expressions of this pure light. Don't become involved with them, otherwise you will wander a long time confused. But even if you do, this light is only a split second, a half breath away. It's never too late to remember the pure light. Be happy, 
dwell, be awake. Remember the pure light. And may our practice tonight and every night be, and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. May all beings be touched by the light of the Dharma. Thank you all for being here, listening, practicing. All beings are cheering you on. We need more light in this world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.